Namaste, everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host, Kushal Mehra. So a few days or months ago, uh, there was a news that came across. It trickled down to India, too. So there was a lawsuit filed by the California Department of Fair Employment and Housing in a federal court in San Jose uh, against Cisco for allegedly practicing discrimination, harassment, and retaliation against an Indian American employee and it had created a few ripples uh, down uh, the Indian community and uh, as they say the echoes were heard in India too because everything that happens with the Indian American community eventually you know it's going to come down all the way to India after all we live in an interconnected world so I I, I was trying to follow up uh, about what's happening over there and then uh, as the case was developing uh, you know, HEF also started to take part uh, in the proceedings. So I thought, well, hang on. It's, I think it's the perfect time to have a discussion about this with uh, with uh, my good friends. So I decided to call Samir and Suhag on the podcast. So here they are. So Samir and Suhag, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Kushal, for having us. Thanks for having us. Pleasure to be here. All right, Samir. So let's start with you. So Samir, I would request, uh, because you're coming on the podcast for the first time, so I'll first request you to tell everybody a bit about yourself. And then let's start like this, Samir. Why don't you brief everybody about what the whole case is in, in, in reality? What, what What is the history behind this? And how is now HF also uh, taking part in the proceedings? Sure, absolutely. So uh, just a little bit about myself. So I am full-time managing director at the Hindu American Foundation, work closely with Suhag and our team there. Um, I'm a lawyer as well by background. Uh, so prior to coming to HAF, I did do um, uh, legal, I had a legal practice um, and then I've been working in some capacity volunteering or working full-time with HAF for over 13 years now. Um, and I'm a native Californian, born and raised in California. Parents came to the U.S. in the 60s. Um, and so, you know, have always been interested in, um, you know, Hindu and Indian issues, um, issues of human rights, uh, geopolitics. And that's what brought me to HAF. Um, I also was heavily involved in the past with um, the famous California textbook case. Um, where, of course, again, Hindus were treated disparately and discriminated against in both the content as well as the whole textbook process. Um, and so, you know, unfortunately, we're back here again, where California is once again trampling on the rights of Hindu Americans, unfortunately, um, despite it being a progressive, a quote unquote, progressive state. Um, and, you know, how we got here, I think, um, you know, is is important. Um, as you mentioned, that there was a case filed by Cisco against Cisco Systems by the state of California, um, and that happened back originally in June of 2020, and that was done in federal court. Now, in federal court, um, apparently there may have been some attempts to negotiate uh, between Cisco Systems and the two named defendants and um, uh, the state of California. That didn't go anywhere. The state then withdrew its case and refiled its case in California state court in October of 2020. Now, in terms of the facts of the case, uh, what basically the allegations are uh, by the state of California and its Department of Fair Employment and Housing, which uh, took up the case, is that two employees at Cisco allegedly discriminated against another employee that's just named as John Doe based on their alleged caste identity. And these two um, defendants, um, apparently one of them made comments to other employees that, oh, John Doe was on the list. And by the list, it was inferred that they were on um, the list uh, for a quota system in India. And that's how they got into IIT, uh, one of the IITs in India. And then as a result of that, um, then this person, uh, John Doe, then suffered actual workplace um, uh, negative treatment. So there were assignments taken away from him, didn't get promotions, uh, was removed from a group apparently that he was working in. Um, and that's, uh, the John Doe took these um, issues to the HR department, human resources department within Cisco. Cisco um, claims that they thoroughly went through the investigation, uh, but did not find any wrongdoing. And then after that, there's a secondary claim of retaliation that because John Doe went to um, uh, human resources, then the two defendants actually then took even more uh, punitive action against uh, him. 
So that's basically the claims there. Now, um, you know, from Cisco's perspective, what they have said, at least in a public blog, is that, you know, again, they invested to get everything. There was no um, actual uh, claim, legitimate claim there. Um, that these two actually wanted the manager, um, one of the defendants and the John Doe knew each other. They went to IIT together, one of the IITs, I'm not sure which one it was um, previously uh, before coming to the US. And the defendant actually recruited this John Doe to come to work to Cisco um, and invited him to work there and on his team. So they knew each other from before and they worked together. So Cisco is standing by that and they have not yet, um, obviously, um, I don't think they've given a formal response in the case, but this is basically what we've seen in a public blog that they put out. Uh, but they are defending themselves and they are not settling at this point in the case. So they're denying wrongdoing as are the two defendants to the best of our understanding. I'll just, uh, Samir, sure. I just want to quickly add, um, hi, everyone. I'm Suhag Shukla. I've been on Kushal's podcast before, so I won't um, go too much into my uh, background or bio, but I also am a native Californian. So um, this is this is kind of personal as well. I no longer live in the state, but have many relatives there. Um, and what happens in California um, reverberates throughout the United States. Courts in other states will look at um, at decisions if they are unique, and this is something unique. Um, this is the first time a case like this is being brought up, or at least that we know of, um, that it can have a ripple effect across all 50 states. But just really quickly on um, what Samir presented, um, the Cisco, you know, you have two, you have you have whatever happened, and then you have the state kind of framing the facts. Um, in a, in a light that's going to support their claims and Cisco is doing as well. One of the details I think that are important that Cisco brought up the fact that um, there were opportunities for growth given to John Doe. Um, there were challenges, um, you know, challenging work provided to him as well as salary increases. So somewhere in between, we'll, we'll, we'll find out what's going on. Um, but that's not something that we're going to be weighing in on. So I just thought I would add that little aspect too of what was on the Cisco blog. All right, so Swag, now that we've understood the case, let's get into a little bit of what American law is and where we start, stand from a legal point of view in this case. So could you first give us a primer? Because a lot of people and a lot of listeners or viewers of this podcast would be people who live in India. So uh, not that they know a lot of Indian law, I'm being, <laughs> being honest, but still. Uh, so how is American law uh, distinct in this case from Indian law and why uh, do you guys think this is a huge problem uh, in terms of what is happening there right now in America? So I'll, I'll kind of give a broad overview and then Samir can kind of weigh in on how we're applying this to the specifics of this, this claim that California is making. So we're looking at, so the U.S. Constitution, the first 10 amendments are referred to as the Bill of Rights. And that's kind of what people talk about when we, we talk about civil rights. What are the rights that we as citizens of this country have? Free speech, um, religious freedom, uh, the right to um, you know assemble, a, a number of, a, a whole slew of, of rights. Um, so the two that we're focusing in on are the First Amendment, um, which one of the freedoms uh, given in the, under the First Amendment is religious freedom and religious freedom. And I'm going to read you what um, it, what the text of the Constitution actually says. It says that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So religious freedom is kind of two prongs. First, it's a restraint on government. So government cannot um, interfere in the inner workings of, of the church. Um, and church were, you know, obviously have to use more broadly to mean religion and religious institutions um, and whatnot. The other aspect of it is that it confers a right to the individual, that individuals have a right to freely exercise their religion. That means they have an ability to freely practice their religion. So uh, I think a key distinction here, uh, at least between what we see in the United States in terms of religious freedom and what the courts are comfortable in doing. And, and maybe kind of, at least as an American, what I find as a striking difference is very often um, in, in Indian courts, you find justices weighing in on religious doctrine, uh, which whether that's allowed um, under, you know, the, the 
language of the Constitution or not, it certainly seems to have become kind of a judicial tradition. Uh, you tend not to see that in the United States, but it, again, it depends on the jurisdiction. And Samir will talk a little bit about um, the difference between um, state court and federal court and specifically California state court. So that's First Amendment. So religious freedom is one of the areas in which um, we have made a claim. The other one is something that's kind of more a catch-all. It's called due process and, uh, and equal protection. Uh, both of those, I think, um, if you just think of general notions of fairness and justice, um, that's where uh, the, the U.S. Constitution, it has looked at procedural um, due process or procedural protections. If you're arrested, what can the police do? What can they not do? What kind of notice is required if the if law enforcement wants to come into your home or um, if the government is going to um, monitor uh, an individual, you know, what sort of judicial filings would they require? So due process has touched upon this type of, um, this aspect of, of privacy and, and individual rights. Um, it also looks at substantive due process that are laws kind of neutral on their face um, or are they adversely or um, impacting a particular uh, community on some sort of basis, whether it's race or religion or gender, et cetera. So um, those two are kind of broad overarching constitutional principles uh, that we'll be touching upon. So I'll, I'll let Samir kind of talk specifically on how the First Amendment and how due process and concerns regarding both those are invoked by what California has done. Sure, absolutely. So the problem that we found with this case is that when California was making its allegations against Cisco and the two defendants, it didn't merely say, okay, here's what we think happened, here's a problem, and, and le left it at that. What it actually did to make its case, it actually had to make this case on the foundation of saying that Hinduism is inherently bigoted and discriminatory because it believes in the caste system. And it is legally mandated part of Hinduism. Therefore, if you are Hindu, <clears throat> you are automatically presumed to believe in the caste system, participate in caste discrimination, and you are mandated to do so. And how they have defined it is, you know, it doesn't really have a, um, you know, there's no consensus on the de definition of what caste is anyways. But now the state of California is trying to present itself as an expert, not just on caste, but on Hinduism. And that's where the problem lies, is that, as Suhag touched on, the core fundamental principle of religious freedom in the First Amendment says that the core, sorry, the state, the government cannot define a religion, cannot interfere in the affairs of private religion. So even if the court, or sorry, the state were to come back and say, oh, we think Hinduism is a great religion, that is still unacceptable. So, you know, here, not only has it tried to weigh in on religious doctrine and Hinduism in particular, but it has done so in a way that defines us with the presumption that we are bad people, that we are automatically bigots. And the second part of that, that is the due process part, which most laws, in, I mean, all laws in California when it comes to discrimination are neutrally, are, are neutral on their face. So it doesn't matter if you are white or African-American or Hispanic, you can be the victim or the um, uh, uh, perpetrator. Um, it's, it's blind to that theoretically. But here, what we're talking about now is that Hindus are already going to be presumed to be guilty, right? So because they have tied Hinduism to caste and made their claims based on that, then anytime caste comes up, it's gonna automatically presume that Hindus are involved, number one, and then Hindus are participating in caste-based discrimination. So we don't even get our ability as individuals to get our due process to actually, you know, they're not gonna look at the individual uh, facts. They're gonna automatically presume. And then we have to say, no, that is not the case instead of the other way around. So the burden falls on us then as Hindus to try to prove that we are, no, we are not discriminatory. We don't believe in caste. When for most people, the reality is, is the Hindu Americans, caste has no relevance for us in America. Um, and, you know, there's no actually um, data to support that it's a relevant issue here. There's one survey that <clears throat> the state of California has referred to. And this is a survey by a known anti-Hindu hate group. Uh, that's uh, known as Equality Labs. And Equality oh, Labs. Those people, 
Yes, yes, exactly. So I, I need not say much more there. I mean, we already know who they are. I mean, they have basically well, said... They're really special. They, they're inequality labs, basically. I mean, they are... They have gone to the extent of saying and testifying. I've personally witnessed this that Hinduism is an evil construct. They've harassed wow. and bullied Hindu children. I've seen the founder of Equality Labs get escorted out of a California State Board of Education hearing by security because she was disrupting uh, people that were patiently Hindu Americans that were patiently waiting in line for their turn to go and testify. And she was disrupt, being disruptive and harassing them, and she was escorted out by security. So this is the type of group that we're dealing with, and now the state of California has cited to their survey, which is scientifically flawed, not to mention that they're obviously a bigoted, uh, intolerant group. But the survey that they had is, is flawed as well, and it didn't even really look at data or collect data from the broader Hindu-American community, and it selectively chose which data to use. Um, we have um, heard from people that they tried to pro provide uh, information in this survey, but their information was not included. Their answers were not included in the final results. And so, so they basically were trying to show, prove what their initial hypothesis was that caste is an issue in the community here in the US. So I have two follow-up questions. Uh, uh, so Samir, you can take one and uh, Suhag, I have one for you too. So Samir, here's my question for you. So are the courts in California uh, doing this for the first time or is there any kind of legal precedent set in the past where the courts in America, any kind of state uh, court or a federal court has gone on and tried to actually define what is an inherent characteristic of a religion or the, the California courts have said, ah, you Hindus, who cares? We'll define what it is uh, uh, in your case. Has there been any religious precedent set in the past uh, from the courts where they said, this is the unique characteristic of Islam. This is a unique characteristic of Scientology. This is the unique characteristic of, uh, say, Christianity or a sect of Christianity. Sure. So in this in this particular uh, case, in the way the state has intervened in this case, I don't, to my knowledge, I don't know if there are precedents. Now, where we have seen a lot of First Amendment religious freedom cases is where um, a state, a city government, state government, or otherwise may actually come in to try to say whether something is considered a legitimate practice, um, is something a sincerely held belief. So that's the test for First Amendment religious freedom. It doesn't have to say that, okay, what is Hinduism? But it has to say that, do you have a sincerely held belief in this and therefore you are, um, your practices are, uh, are, are being carried out accordingly. So we do have cases and precedents around where the court or where the government has tried to define what is a sincerely held belief and what is not. Um, in this particular case, I don't know to what extent and if there's any precedent on actually trying to define an aspect of religion and saying, as you mentioned, Hinduism, I'm sorry, Islam is this, Christianity is this, Judaism is this. I think we did see that. And if we did see, you know, the state coming out tomorrow and saying um, Islam is terrorism, um, all Muslims therefore believe in uh, committing terrorist acts, I would see, an, and rightfully so, you would see an uproar from not just Muslims, but the entire American, uh, you know, broader American society. So that's why we intervened here. And so what we are, are saying is that, hey, court, neither the two, neither of the two parties here are representing the interests of broader of the broader Hindu American community because the state of California, we know, is obviously, you know, trying to make its case based on maligning Hinduism. Cisco just wants to probably resolve this, so they are trying to defend the claims, as are the defendants. Now, the defendants may very well be Hindu Americans. But, you know, whether they are looking out for the interests of the broader Hindu-American community, we don't know. But what we are saying is that we don't believe that either party represents the interests of the broader Hindu-American community. And therefore, we need to be involved in this case. And court led us into this case uh, because we need to protect the basic, fundamental uh, civil rights of Hindu-Americans. First Amendment, 14th Amendment, and then there's a, a California State Civil Rights Act, the Unruh Civil Rights Act as well. So that's where we're coming into this case, and that's why we're coming to this case. But we haven't um, seen similar situations occurring with other religions being defined in this manner, um, to the best of our knowledge, at least in recent um, in recent years. Yeah, I'll just. Uh, there have been cases where um, suppose there's been some sort of uh, internal decision um, in a church uh, regarding hiring and firing. Uh, there have been cases where uh, the 
a lower court has tried to intervene in saying, well, was this done according to the rules that the church has laid out? And higher courts have come in saying, no, no, can't get into that. That's the inner workings of, of the church. Uh, so it, it's always a evolving area of the law, uh, but uh, Generally. I think that those cases, it's whether they're solving a question, but and right. just be internally, right? They're not coming out and saying you as Catholics or you as Christians, yeah, absolutely, X, Y, and Z, or you act in this manner, you are legally mandated to discriminate, discriminate, and especially right. in that manner, I think that's where the problem comes in, right? And this is this is the state that's asking for this sort of definition, and that's why. Uh, you know, what, what we're filing technically is called a motion to intervene. Um, so we are, as, as Samir said, trying to kind of come in as a third party that has a, a stake in the claim. Um, and we would be adversely impacted um, if these questions are not um, at least explored uh, by, by the judge. All right. So, Hawk, so uh, I have a question for you now that what seems to be happening in this case uh, to me is, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but this seems to be very serious because this is the court assuming that there is, uh, whether we like it or not, there is a caste, cows and curries stereotype about Hindus across America, uh, especially in America. Uh, uh, it is there in Canada, but far lesser in Canada than in America. I don't know what's with the American zeitgeist, but they reduce uh, Hindus to caste, cows and curry. And now the courts are taking that rubbish, uh, you know, kind of cultural stereotype and they're trying to mandate that rubbish cultural stereotype into a legal definition of Hinduism. Now I'll give you a counter example from India. A lot of people don't know this. So on my podcast, I've been calling a lot of Muslims to have discussions. They call them Pasmanda Muslims. So what are Pasmanda Muslims? They are 85%, almost 85% of Muslims in India. Lo and behold, they are lower caste Muslims and mm. there is active caste discrimination in Islamic communities in India and outside India. So there is a clear cut hierarchy where there are Ashraf, Sayyid and Pathans on one side. And then there are the others. You know, there are different castes in that. Uh, I mean, uh, anybody who wants to go and watch out, learn about casteism in Islam. It's fascinating how the Sayyids and the Ashrafs actually discriminate against the Pashmandas. Honestly, I did not even know. So the word Kamina, which is a swear word, comes from a caste slur kameen in Arabic. Mm. I do not know that. I'm not going to use it ever again in my life. I do not know the history of that word. But the point is that they would not dare take this reality. This is a lived reality in India, by the way. But they would not take that stereotype for Muslims and try to define Islam as an inherently casteist religion. So, so, Suhag, my question to you is, how can the court take such a rubbish pop culture-ish, wrong stereotype, and try to make it a legal precedent on uniquely for Hindus. Yeah. Well, I just, just to clarify, this is the state of California who's doing it, right? They're asking the court to actually put a stamp of approval on this definition that is rooted in, quite frankly, colonial and racist stereotypes. Um, and, and this is why it's important to fight against stereotypes, whether it's in the media, um, whether it's in textbooks, uh, you know, because especially textbooks, because that is where you are educating your your citizenry, um, especially where in the United States, where public education is such a um, fundamental part of of the broader civic system that that's where it started. Um, and so, you know, textbooks, as, as Samir talked about, that's an area that we've been fighting for since our inception in 2003. You see a pyramid. Um, in which you have the Brahmins on top and, and then, you know, so on and so forth. And it's presented as this kind of pan-Indian system. And, you know, stereotypes are stereotypes and, you know, we can kind of take them lightly. And, and I think to some extent uh, what has maybe kind of lent some complacency in our community is the fact that we have, in spite of the stereotypes, uh, seen tremendous success um, on the educational front, on the economical front, uh, in terms of even um, in the civic spaces. We're seeing an emerging and rising um, Indian and Hindu American presence. So that, I think, kind of uh, 
lets a complacency seep in, in terms of fighting against uh, these stereotypes. Uh, there's also the fact that these stereotypes uh, were embedded into multiple generations um, in India through the English education system. So, you know, interestingly enough, uh, when we were, um, not to get too far off the topic, but, you know, when we were working on textbooks and the textbooks still presented the Aryan invasion theory, for instance, um, many people within uh, within the Indian diaspora are like, well, but that's kind of what happened. Why are they saying that? Because that's what they learned um, in, in English medium schools in India. So it's, it's a deep rooted problem um, in terms of how these stereotypes get um, kind of embedded into the, uh, the collective imagination. And the collective imagination is largely, um, uh, largely based on kind of a Western um, European narrative and the Western European experience um, of, of everyone else from a position of, of superiority. But here what's happening is when you have the state perpetuating a stereotype, there's going to be real consequences, whether they're intended or unintended. Um, we're already seeing um, that in, in the tech industry, because that seems to be kind of the first target, that um, you have Indian American or Indian workers, they're not necessarily US citizens, um, Indian workers, Hindu workers, who are really feeling intimidated in the workplace because you have a stereotype that's been um, presented by the state you've been provided no other working definition. So the average Indian worker, which by the way, some of whom have come from communities who in the Indian legal structure would be either SC, uh, OBC or ST saying, we don't know what to do. We don't know what's going to happen if we're faced with a false accusation. We have now our HR departments wanting to talk about this thing called caste, and they have zero cultural competency um, in that regard. Uh, so what do we do? How can we uh, defend against us being able to just do our work? That's all we want to do. And, and the problem is also, you know, Samir mentioned some of the activists, the, the types of surveys that they have put on have really tried to demonize quite benign, everyday Hindu practices, like, you know, in one of the surveys that was making the rounds, um, there were questions like, oh, has a colleague asked if you are going to go celebrate uh, a Hindu holiday like Janmashtami? Or has a colleague asked if you're vegetarian? Um, you know, these are regular conversational questions that are trying to uh, be cast as uh don't mean that pun, but are are trying to um, be relayed or somehow um, kind of characterized as if there's microaggressions of some sort. So you know, there's there's a real uh, downstream effect to what happens in the day to day lives of Indian Americans who are just trying to go about their day, do their work, you know, create friendships um, or at least some camaraderie in the workplace. Uh, so stereotypes do have an impact. And uh, so you already have kind of a larger paradigm that that supports the stereotype. And then then when you have policy trying to impose it, it's really dangerous. Now, here's the the part that bothers me the most in this entire fiasco is that. The, you know, they would not dare do this, do this with Islam. I know that they will not. They just, they will not. And somewhere in this, you know, woke oppression Olympics, it's just that, you know, Hindus have been canceled. It's kind of, they've become victims of their own success because they got successful. They worked hard. You know, what does a person do when they immigrate to another country? They merge into that country's larger culture. So whatever the American culture was, you know, individualism, work hard, educate yourself, go for a good job, take professional uh, professions where there is opportunity to grow and you grow. And lo and behold, you become the richest minority in the United States of America. And that's your original sin now, <laughs> using Christian terminology here. That's your sin. You became successful. And now just because you're successful and 
I mean, I'm saying this, this is not your words, but I think there is also a slightly anti-pagan attitude that I noticed in general when I used to live in, in, in the United States or Canada, where there used to be this thing, you know, where it doesn't matter if it was the secularist leftist or the, or the Christian uh, Republican. I used to think that, you know, both sides hated the pagan. They, they were just, because, you know, even in the language, sometimes you listen to American podcasts, right? And they would use this idolatry as a pejorative. They would use paganism as a pejorative. It's in their zeitgeist. It's in their mind. And you're just sitting there. I was like, oh, I did not know I was a problem. <laughs> in my brain, I used to go, I did not know I was a problem. Now, I'm a disbeliever, so it would not bother me beyond a point. It did not bother me. But I would then think about people who actually did believe in these things. And then I was like, okay. Also, Samir, the second problem to me was that when it comes to the Hindus, all the bad things are the stereotypes. But yoga is not Hindu. Yeah. Meditation is not Hindu. <laughs> exactly. Vegetarianism. And, and the funny part is, you know, it's like, tumhara vegetarianism cool. Hamara yeah. vegetarianism imposition. Bhai, ye kya hai? Matlab, yeah. tumhare veganism mein sab chalega. Magar humne bola bhai, humko nahi khana. So Samir, how does one deal with this dichotomy where it's a very funny thing? There is a meme in India, you know, say Toda Kutta Tommy, Sada Kutta Kutta, that kind of a thing. So how do we deal with this? How do we deal with this hypocrisy in the American uh, discourse when it comes to Hindus? Yeah, that's a million dollar question. Um, and that's, <laughs> story that, that, of our life, Kushal, story of our <laughs> life. <laughs> and, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because, um, you know, if you look at how this case started, I mean, there was a media blitz. And this is what you were talking about, how it reverberated in India. And so there was such a agenda, such, such an agenda behind pushing this out there. But what was even more disturbing is that media and everybody else just accepted it, right? Nobody even thought twice about Oh, maybe that there's something wrong in how the state is kind of going about its claim here, what they're assuming about Hindus. No, it was just about, oh, yes, caste-based discrimination is an issue. And then they went on to then saying that, well, you know, this is an issue with Hindus. And then they somehow found a way to tie it to Modi and Hindu nationalism in India and all over the place. So, I mean, this is this is the ultimate problem is that this narrative has been created that um, and I think. Probably to a, a large extent, I mean, you mentioned this anti-pagan attitude, but to a large extent, I think it's coming from the South Asian activist scholars that are coming from India and that have really infiltrated uh, the academies here in the U.S., the university system. Um, and they themselves, right? So if you say, you know, this is my, you know, this is a brown person saying this, right? The white person is going to um, accept it. Um, and so they have created this narrative. They have been the ones that have said Hinduism is X, Y, and Z. They have been the biggest opponents of saying anything positive about Hinduism or opposing us when we say Hinduism is, um, you know, yoga, sorry, is, comes from Hinduism, et cetera. Or when we talk about any Hindu practices as being positive, it's actually them that are leading the charge to mm -hmm. say, oh, you are Hindu nationalist, you are, you know, extremist. So as long as you say things negative about Hinduism, you're okay. You're good to go. But when you start saying anything positive or framing Hinduism in a positive manner, or talking about Hindu-American identity, oh, you are privileged, you are casteist, you are extremist, you are this and that. So I think that is where the, the battle has to be won, is first and foremost, dealing with the narrative that's being set by, quote unquote, our own, um, that are coming from India here and that have you know been kind of actually dominating um, the narrative on Hinduism and uh, on Indians, and then also being able to have our own community being more articulate on in explaining ourselves, right? And then you know there's then there's a kind of a tendency then to react sometimes with anger, right? You see, as we like to call it, the Uncle Brigade, um, and we love them. We say that in an affectionate manner, but sometimes <laughs> they're frustrated and they don't know how to respond in a systematic. Kind of articulate manner and so then it, it makes us look even worse right so being able to kind of consistently uh, articulate who we are as a people what we stand for what are uh, our contributions and doing that in a kind of a consistent you know manner and um and and doing it in a way that you know resonates with the broader american society and american community i think is going to be what's going to be effective in the long run, right? We're not going to win over those people that are, and uh, you know, anti-Hindu that, you know, have this ax to grind that are, you know, Marxist in nature, but at least if we can counter them effectively and we can 
you know, um, you know, provide a counter narrative that is just as effective, I think we're going to be able to, you know, uh, make progress. I'll just quickly add um, something that, you know, Samir talked a little bit about the media blitz around this, the uncritical uh, way in which some of these um, white American um, reporters are engaging with Indian activists on this. So for instance, one, um, you know, scholar activists suggested that tech companies hand over a list of names with, uh, you know, workers of Indian origin, and he would go and help tabulate what what caste they were. I mean, just imagine I mean, <laughs> any other context in which someone suggests that hand me a list of of people who are, you know, Muslim or Jewish or whatever, just that I mean, that's where you would have to stop the sentence, not even like, what are your intentions after the fact of that? So, you know, the uncritical way, and this, this appeared on national public radio, which is, you know, it's a pan United States news source. The fact that a reporter would just kind of, oh yeah, okay, that's cool. It just shows the level of cluelessness and the danger of, of, of stereotypes. Yeah, but Suhag, it's a little more than that. And I want to repeat this. And I, I and I hope and look, 35% of my audiences of this podcast are Indians who live outside India. Mm-hmm. So I have a significant base of NRIs or, you know, people who are born and raised in different countries. I know it's actually primarily America and UK. So I, I want those people to realize that it's just not ignorance. It is anti-paganism. And it's time we realize that it is an anti-pagan attitude and we should call it what it is. Uh, uh, it is what these people are anti-paganism they are anti-Hindu there is a lot of anti-Hinduness here but what bothers me in this entire scenario is that you know they create citation loops and I was talking about this on a friend uh, on a podcast of a friend of mine and I want to share that with you guys over here too it it just takes one person to lie so what these people do is that they find that one brown guy in India he's like PhD from a respectable university in courts. And that one guy hates everything about Hinduism. Mm-hmm. And that guy will find all the rubbish that is there. Look, I'm no, I'm the last person who should be saying this because I criticize Hinduism myself so much. But the point is, I will be fair. They will find that one most hateful person on planet Earth. They'll be like, expert. And then all the other, I don't know what to say, Goras, they will sit and say, but bhai, tumhara admi bol raha hai. And all of them cite and then the citation loop is completed. And then you go and question that one guy and say, but that's a lie. But I'm not lying. Look, he cited it. Then you go to that person, that person. But I did not lie. Look, he said it. And eventually the last person saying, your person is saying it. I don't know if he's authentic or not. I was like, what do you mean? Would you dare do that with Islam? Would you dare do that? Just look at it. Our scriptures get translated in the United States of America. Do they ever do that? Uh, do the basic courtesy of going to a sampraday head, to a going to a uh, you know swami of that sampraday and say, sir, is this what your text really means? They never do that. They just say, uh, you know, in in our there's a very funny thing. It's like like what Audrey is doing. Audrey is basically I call her Teja. So she's gonna, there's an old scene in Andaz Apna Apna where uh, Paresh Rawal says Teja, I am Audrey is the biggest appeal to authority on planet Earth. She says, oh, I'm the historian. I know Sanskrit. So somebody from India who's a practicing Sanskrit scholar told Audrey, why don't you chat with me in Sanskrit and we have a detailed discussion about Sanskrit literature itself. She blocked that person. The point is that they would dare not do this with anything else. So why have we as Hindus allowed them? And I blame Hindus in India primarily, Suhag. I don't blame Hindus in America. The, The fault lies here in India. Why have we, in your opinion, allowed to let them get away with this. And I have one more question, but I want to clarify this problem. I can't wrap my head around it. Look, I, you know, I um, am maybe a little bit more forgiving than you are. Uh, I think that we're, we're one, there were, there were the challenges of building a new country. We're a very young democracy. When I say we, I mean, India as a whole, right. And, and we adopted a lot of, of the tools that were intended to subjugate us. Um, and, you know, 
I don't know what it's like to start a new country to say, well, how could you do that? Maybe you need a starting point. But I think that India is a mature enough democracy, a robust enough democracy to begin having these conversations. I don't believe the brushing under the carpet of real challenges uh, is a constructive approach, whether it's uh, interreligious relations in India, whether it's knowing our own history, um, how our history has been written. And I do feel that there is a growing awareness. I mean, just in the past five years, there's been an explosion of, of uh, platforms. Um, I mean, you can just go on YouTube if you have any interest in learning about you know, certain historical texts and that perspective of what was going on to get a glimpse into what life was like at a, in a particular kingdom or, or whatever. Uh, there's, I say, let's look at it as opportunity. We haven't done it anymore. We're also certainly not alone. Um, you can look at, um, you know, different uh, regions in Africa where they are also going through this kind of decolonizing process. Um, Aboriginal uh, communities in Australia, uh, throughout uh, South America. So, you know, it, it's kind of the awakening, um, and, I, and I don't want to call it, it's, I guess, it's post-colonial, not in an academic sense, but in the sense of we are waking up to uh, the reality of, how we see the world has largely been uh, framed uh, through that colonial lens. And uh, people are tired of it because what that lens does is it creates a obvious disconnect between the narrative and the ground realities. And so uh, I think we're, we're on the cusp of something. Um, I wouldn't, I don't know that we had the capacity necessarily to address everything. Um, and so we just need to keep plugging away at that and support the academics who are, uh, you know, digging through parliamentary records from from the British uh, government to really see what was being said. What were the challenges? I mean, so much information has come out uh, about uh, what what we went through um, and what was done to, to Indians for, for hundreds of years. And that, that process needs to continue to happen. I don't know if I answered your question, but um, I, I just don't feel that it's uh, constructive to just why are, why is this the case? I mean, it's, it's obvious and we're not alone. I think it's also an opportunity for us to build bridges with other civilizations um, that have faced this because we have, uh, shared concerns and um, and shared challenges. So this is a perfect segue to get into a question that somebody in the live stream has also asked. And anyways, I wanted to ask this. That I've always struggled with this myself. So I, when I used to stay in Canada and later on, you know, in my consistent travels to America, I mean, I have family in America myself and being married to a Canadian uh, Indian. So I know that distinctness, the difference between what my wife is and what I am, not just at, uh, at the level of being an individual, she's her own sort of person, but even as at a cultural level, we're just different. And, and I did not understand that until I went outside India. I used to think all Indians are just the same people, but no, they're not the same people. We are distinct. And that somewhere down the line that I believe at times, I think Indians, Hindus in India tend to forget that Hindus in America will be different than Hindus in India. Hindus in England will be different from Hindus in America and India. And, you know, same thing applies to Hindus in Fiji, like a Hindu in Kenya. Why does the Hindu in Kenya have to have a common experience as a Hindu in India? This is actually something very interesting. So somebody's even asked this, that has the rise of the non-left in India also kind of contributed to this, you know, you know, assault on Hindus in America. And uh, and it stems from what I'm saying that somehow people refuse to understand that, look, a Hindu born and raised in America is an American and happens to be a Hindu and their Hindu experience and their Hindu-ness and their Hinduism could be different from the Hinduism of a Hindu born and raised in India. Do you think you guys also struggle in that department a lot of times, Suhak? Oh, I mean, absolutely. Since 2014, I think that the conflations that you see of Hindu Americans, whether we are getting engaged 
in the political space, running for office, or you know, looking at an appoint appointment um, in government. Um, those attacks are um, have been relentless, and they've. I mean, it was just kind of like okay, baseline to boom, you know, straight up. So and and you know the the internet and access to information and the blurring of of at least uh, national lines or borders disappears on the internet, right? So who's who's screaming from India on Twitter versus who's maybe screaming from the United States? It's it's hard to know. Uh, but you're absolutely right. I, I would say that, you know, we have uh, the the fountain from which we all drink, and that fountain is of dharma. Uh, but but the beauty of dharma and and, and the the um, I guess inherent quality of dharma is that it depends on your time and context. So our own tradition tells us that dharma changes. So, uh, but depending on you know the interpretation or the application of dharma changes depending on your circumstance. So, you know, in my conversations with people um, who are from Guyana who are Hindu, they're four to five generations out. Their life experience is so different, starting from where they left in India why they ended up in Guyana or in in uh, Trinidad if they came as you know uh, indentured servants their entire reality is different from say someone like my father who didn't have opportunity or or wanted to pursue further opportunity in the United States um, and was able to get sponsored and came to the United States very different socioeconomic um, circumstance um, and then what are you surrounded by uh, you know in in places like Suriname for instance Hindi is still spoken why because the Dutch didn't necessarily take on uh, uh, the the idea that okay if you break the language you break the culture, which was, I, I think it was Macaulay who came up with that idea. But uh, so people are still speaking Hindi. They were living in closer quarters so that the way in which they were able to keep up certain traditions carried on through generations. That's not necessarily what you see in the United States. Um, certainly there are areas where uh, you have kind of concentrations of, of Indian Americans and Hindu Americans and but it's very different from then even the UK. Um, when I, I've been talking to a lot more um, Hindus from, from the UK, they're three, four, five generations out. And it's kind of nice, I think, for us to share our experiences because we're all at different stages of our diaspora and our identities have been shaped by different circumstances. And, um, and so this sloppy comparison, we don't see it happening for... Germans in the United States or Irish in the United States that, oh, you're Irish American, let's conflate you with what's going on in Ireland today, even though it was your great, great, great grandfather who came to the United States. So, you know, identities change. I'm looking at my children, um, you know, who are 22 and 18 now, their sense of what it is to be Indian or what it is to be Hindu is even different from what mine might be having been raised by immigrant parents. They've been raised by two American parents. So that's a very um, important point and an area that needs to um, really kind of be emphasized because conflating anyone in a diaspora with what's going on in India, let alone conflating the actions of a few Indians with an entire nation is, is just sloppy. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I would add is that, I mean, there's a huge also identity gap between those of us that whose parents came here like in the 60s when that, where there was that first opening up of immigration versus those that came here maybe in the 90s and the 2000s and are continuing to come here. Um, you know, when we were, you know, growing up, you know, the game was assimilation for our parents, right? Um, you, you know, whether it came to language, you know, at that time, the research said that you just have your kids learn one language, learn English, you know? And so you see a very different, um, you know, uh, as a result, you see a very different generation of Hindu Americans that grew up, you know, in the 70s and the 80s versus those that came here much differently um, and came here, you know, with the H-1B kind of uh, visa tech boom. And, you know, how we actually look at our identity is very different. We had to try much harder to actually kind of, you know, protect our practices and continue our practices because there wasn't much around us. 
Um, and I was fortunate enough to grow up in a community where there was a growing Indo-American community in Fremont, California, but many others across the country didn't have that. And so even when we talk about the uniqueness of a Hindu-American identity, we have a uniqueness of a wave based on waves of immigration coming into this country. Now, there's some melding now, <clears throat> you know, as we go forward, but it's just very different in attitudes also and how we perceive things, how we deal with things. Um, even issues like caste. I mean, like for us, like I didn't, I nobody ever even asked me when my caste was ever growing up. It was not a relevant issue. Um, and most people I know, it's not a relevant issue. Um, and so even these types of things, like identity is very different. At that time, growing up is basically where are you from in, you know, in India? It's basically three, three options. Are you Punjabi, Gujarati, or are you Madrasi? You know, like that, that's basically the three options. You know, it's your, you, those, that, that was it basically. Um, and so, you know, nowadays you, it's a much more kind of diverse community. It's a much uh, bigger community and you have many more options here in terms of how to preserve your culture, et cetera. Um, but it was very different before. So there's even that gap. And I think what the problem also is that people that grew up in our generation, a lot of them have kind of gone on to positions where they've hid their identity or they haven't used their identity effectively. So, so some of the people that we have seen that are strongly opposing um, some of the things that we're doing are actually the children of that first wave of immigrants that have gotten those positions at universities or are in public positions because they probably were ashamed of their identity or they were the you know, they were so focused on assimilating and trying to kind of fit in with everybody that they looked down then on everything in their identity, um, whether it was Hindu American or Indian American identity. So that was, I think, another aspect of it. And that's what we're seeing now, the repercussions of that um, is that, you know, uh, shying away from it and actually opposing it to some extent and not understanding it. I'll also just quickly add, um, that, you know, I find it kind of funny that if I go to India on my, you know, frequent trips, I oftentimes will meet someone that'll be like, man, you're so desi. Um, and I find that kind of funny, but at the same time, recognizing that even what it is to be Indian is changing in India, right? That's a constantly evolving identity. So my mother, um, who grew up in a, in a small village, uh, and has seen a sea change in her life. She's someone who actually used to go to the well and was known for being able to hold like three, you know, uh, matlas on her head and on her hip. And, and now, and then she spent her career programming computers. You know, the values and the traditions that she raised me with are probably stuck in the 1960s of India, right? You meet someone in the UK who might have come to the UK via Africa. Well, man, they're like 1900s, 1910, 1920. And you can, you can hear it in, in like, for me, I'm a, a Gujarati, you can hear it in the language and the words that are used. So, you know, all of these things really uh, lend to uh, complexity and, and beauty and, and, and just individual experience that I think is important to, to recognize. But uh, you, Suhag, the whole thing is now, I want to talk to you guys about HAF itself because it's very important to talk to us because somebody asked me a question and I, I mean, we've had these conversations offline many times, but my one grouse with the Indian community, whether in India or in America is, they don't put their money where their mouth is. They are the richest minority. They have tons of money. But they never put their money in the mouth. So somebody has asked the question, how many Hindu Americans are willing to fund activists fighting for their rights as compared to those focused on making money and focus on the family? Now, now HAF, you know, I mean, no, there's a famous saying, right? Bhukhe pet bhajan na hove gopala. That, you know, you can't even sing a bhajan on an empty stomach. So the thing is, now Hindu American Foundation does all this work and tries to do whatever they can in their own capacity. You guys have... You know, like Samir said, he, he had a flourishing career. He left that career. I know you have left your 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 career and you guys are doing this. So let's say if somebody was to, you know, somebody listens to this podcast and they say, how do I help or support the Hindu American Foundation? So tell me, how do we go about doing that then? Support us, um, you know, follow us on all of our, our social media. Uh, and, you know, we, when we started in 2003, we were looking to other communities um, that had successfully um, 
carved out a space uh, to meet their advocacy needs. And, um, you know, we've talked about it today that, you know, economic and educational success uh, did allow a complacency to creep in. That said, I think there was enough recognition in our community uh, for people to recognize that if we don't tackle these issues on a full-time basis, meaning we've done a whole lot in terms of building institutions on a volunteer basis. And th those that's important where, you know, during the day you're an engineer or an entrepreneur or a businessman, but then on the weekends you're giving your time to uh, teach language, teach dance, um, you know, teach about Hinduism or whatever. Uh, but things like advocacy have to be done on a full-time basis. You have to uh, build subject matter expertise. You have to attract people who have uh, the requisite training. So lawyers, people who have studied political science, people who have studied marketing and messaging and, you know, the whole gamut um, that required in not just knowing the, an issue, recognizing issues, knowing how to articulate a stance about an issue, knowing uh, you know the framework, the historical legal frameworks around it, all of that stuff requires um, full-time effort and and subject matter expertise. And you know, for we were able to hire someone within our first three or four years because there were enough people in the community who recognized that this is going to be our next chapter. If we want to see that the institutions that we've built to uh, promote culture and language and religion, that, that the bridge between those institutions and the mainstream are, are built um, and are, are positive and um, are on, built on the basis of understanding and not stereotypes, we need to invest in this. And so year after year, we have individual donors who are um, supporting what's, you know, actually a quite humble um, budget. We're at around 1.7 million now, and we have 13 staff. Uh, we are not, uh, you know, I would say that that average number of the Indian American household that's um, oftentimes touted. Uh, we are, none of us at HAF make that. <laughs> so, you know, there's a great sacrifice, I think, by, by the folks who uh, come to us and, and want to dedicate their career to advocacy. But there is, um, there is an, a growing awareness. I think that this uh, Cisco case has really brought it home because you cannot, uh, everyone's success is rooted in their ability to work in a place where they are not going to be discriminated against, in a place where they are going to at least get their foot in the door with opportunity. And what the Cisco case poses is a danger of us being suspect in the eyes of the law through no wrongdoing of ours, but because of a stereotype that the state of California is perpetuating. So does more need to be done? Absolutely, we need to begin investing even more in, in these aspects of advocacy, as well as uh, encouraging young people to go into fields that aren't necessarily uh, as financially rewarding as where we have seen success. So in academia, in uh, working for think tanks and other spaces, but where we are starting to see that. Um, Samir yeah. might want to add something, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I would just add to that. I think, you know, the other thing is that, so on an individual level, people, Indian Americans give a lot of money to politicians, right, to elected officials. And there used to be a joke that the Indian American donor is the easiest donor to deal with because they give money and all they ask for in return is a picture, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and so I think holding, you know, your elected officials accountable right building relationships but not just so you can get the photo right building relationships so you can then um, talk about the issues that you care about you know use hf as a resource to talk about what are the priorities both domestically and in terms of foreign policy and how do you then you know um you know how do you cultivate that relationship with those elected officials how do you consistently meet with them educate them engage them and then when they do something that is against the interests of the community hold them accountable right cut off the money and tell them you know we're not going to support you anymore if you're going to continue to take these positions um that are not consistent with our what's in the best interest of our community um 
And so I think there's a lot of ways that people can take individual steps. Also, when HAF is putting out, you know, and if you follow us, you'll, you'll, people who follow us, they'll hear about these things. When we are running campaigns, um, grassroots campaigns on different um, issues or pieces of legislation, and, uh, you know, whether it's a caste issue or something else, you know, help proliferate the message. Um, help take action, whether it's calling, you know, your elected official, whether it's, you know, taking action to towards the media, whether it's, um, you know, sharing things on social media, but helping to proliferate the message and speaking with a consistent voice. Right. I mean, if we have so many different voices coming from different places and they're saying different things, we're not going to be unified in what we're trying to accomplish. If you look at how other communities have been successful, I mean, look at the Muslim community and what they've been able to do. You know, whatever the differences may be, when it comes to certain issues, they come lockstep together and they all speak with one voice. And that's why they're able to project influence and power. Um, and the only way we're going to be able to do that is if we speak with one voice. You know, behind the scenes, we can have our differences. We have our separate organizations. That's great. But in the public sphere, we should speak with one voice. We should speak with clarity um, and we should be articulate in what we want and how we want it. And what are the consequences if that doesn't happen? You know what stands out for me in this entire scenario, and I guess you know, we've reached the hour uh, hour mark, so I guess we'll wrap it up. But uh, in my experience, uh, you know, I, I'm in a unique position where I lived outside India, came back to India, have been constantly in touch uh, with you know Hindus outside India. Uh, you know, Suhag mentioned the Guyanese Hindus. I have to say, those brothers and sisters can dance. <laughs> <laughs> Hanuman Chalisa in a in a Caribbean temple. I will take hands down any day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, those people. They and you know what the beauty is that they have the unique genre of music. Uh, uh, they have. Uh, I think it's called Soka Chutney. Uh, if you have not ch checked it out, go and check it out. It's 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 amazing that music. The way they do things. Uh, it's very unique, and I always thought, in my view. You know, Hinduism was always, if there was a living faith that was a celebration, a living celebration of human diversity and human thought plurality, I always thought it was Hinduism. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I feel we we kind of, you know, we're very Abrahamic in our thinking where, you know, Hindus want to define the identity of the global Hindu. And I, uh, as a Hindu, you know, obviously, you know, the numbers are higher in India. So always, you know, Hindus in India are going to try and, you know, tell the Americans over there, oh, this is what uh, the Hindu experience is. And then, then we'll tell the British Hindu, this is what the, the British Hindu experience should be. And then we'll maybe find some Patel in, in, in Africa and tell them, by, you know, you know, you have to do this. And I, somewhere down the line, I think, we we lose the essence of hinduism my second grouse is that you know, i always say this and you know you can call me a broken record but well too bad uh, i my biggest problem is that hindus don't put their money where their mouth is they have money now whether it's hindus in america hindus in india i understand india is a poor country but definitely hindus in america are not poor and samir was spot on i call it the honored and humbled syndrome where we are just honored and humbled to put a photo on Facebook. Joyu, Joyu. <laughs> I met a politician. They call honored and humbled. Please like my photo. So, so you know, get over your honored and humbled syndrome. Learn the art of lobbying. I thought, I thought, you know, Hindus who are so smart in entrepreneurial skills, they would have learned the skill of lobbying, but I thought they they just did not take it seriously and and it hurts me. So my request to each and every one of you who's going to listen to who's listening to this now, who's going to listen to this later on and watch this on YouTube or on you know the audio version is, I've left the details of the Hindu American Foundation in the description of the podcast. First thing, go to their website, check their workout. Second, follow them on Twitter or whatever uh, Facebook, wherever they are, follow them. Check the work they do. Study what their record is. Don't trust me. You should never trust anyone blindly. You should go and do your homework. That's the Hindu way. Remember what Buddha said. Buddha said, do not believe what I'm saying. Question me too. So mm -hmm. I am saying, go and check the Hindu American Foundation out. And as far as this case is concerned, I think Hindus in America should not answer for the problems Hindus face in India. Is caste a reality in India? It is. 
I'll be the first one to face it. I mean, I've literally done a monologue that asked for the annihilation of Jati Varna. So I can't lie. I asked for the annihilation of that, that damn thing. But the point is, what has a Hindu kid in America who literally was raised in an atmosphere the caste was never a subject for them. They did not know what caste is. They did not even know that surnames could tell you your jati. Yes, I know kids in America who do not know your surname is directly linked to your jati and your gotra and all those things. They literally don't know that. And to make them go through that traumatic experience and that too by the state government is something atrocious. And I'm sure nobody and I repeat, nobody would dare do this to any other you know, minority community in the United States of America. And somewhere down the line, we as Hindus in India, especially to you guys in India, I want you guys to stand up this time and support our Hindu brothers and sisters uh, or whatever gender they belong to. So, so, you know, support them. Support the Hindus in America. So do your thing. Go to Hindu American Foundation read what they're doing, support them wherever you can. And, and I'll end the podcast on, on that note. So Samir and Suhag, once again, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. It's yes. always a pleasure to talk to you guys. Likewise. So Great conversation. Yeah. All right, guys, time to wrap things up. If you like the podcast, please share it, like the video, leave your comments below there. I once again repeat, please support the Hindu American Foundation. All the details are going to be in the description of, pod, of the podcast. Doesn't matter if it's on SoundCloud or on YouTube. If you want to support my podcast, you can support it by becoming a member of the you know, YouTube channel. Or you can support me on Patreon or maybe buy the Charvak podcast merch. I try my best to bring interesting conversations to you. And I'll keep on doing this as long as you know I want to maybe. So on that note, I'll leave you guys for the day. I'll see you next time with another interesting chat. Until then. Namaste. Take care. Goodbye.